This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. How many of you have heard of a DTR? Anyone heard of a DTR? My brother-in-law, Joel in the front. Yes, A DTR, Russell knows it. It stands for uh, define the relationship. Define the relationship. And it's this thing in, uh, in Christian dating culture where as you're getting to know someone that you are interested in, you need to define the relationship because you want to ensure that or discern if you are on the same, uh, at the same speed in the relationship, right? So one person is in the relationship and is thinking, I want to marry this person, and the other person is thinking, no, we're just having a good time, right? Not that they're mutually exclusive, trust me. So you would define the relationship and just say, let's just check in and see how we, how, where are we in this, and we're, we're, we're wanting just to kind of follow up and check in with each other, just to make sure that we're on the same page. And someone, uh, a Bible teacher that I, I really love said one time, he said, the best way to discern about who is the person that you should be married to is he said to run after God. Run after God. And then he says, when you see someone who is running after God along with you at the same speed, then you can say, do you want to run after God together? That's a good way. That's what's helpful for me. It was a blessing to me. But so we're, when you define the relationship, you're just kind of checking in, do we need to recalibrate where we are? And our sermon series in 1 Corinthians is all about how we are recalibrating our lives in accordance with the Word of God. We've talked about recalibrating watches and recalibrating uh, telescopes, recalibrating everything. And thankfully, there's only a few more chapters because I can't think of anything else in the world to recalibrate as an opening illustration. But we got to find the relationship. We're recalibrating, thinking through, how does God's Word shape and affect my life? How does it help me to become a follower of Jesus? And we remember that the church in Corinth was living in a world that was rife with materialism and uh, sexual mores that were inconsistent with the Bible. Uh, These people had come out of a a wild way of living, and they had encountered Jesus, and they were seeking to follow him and be not only faithful to Jesus and his word, but also to demonstrate to the world what it meant to live as a follower of Christ to be a community together. And so, so many times in 1 Corinthians, we've talked about relationships and how the church relates to one another, how they connect, how they're resolving conflict, how they're working through difficult things. And this passage is uh, certainly no different, the passage on love. So I'll be reading 1 Corinthians 13, all of it. Please stand with me if you're able. This is the Word of God. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. 
As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have become fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word uh, that reminds us of your character and your goodness, and it also instructs us in the way of living as a response to the gospel. And so we pray that as we study your word this morning, that God, you would shape and form us according to your will, that you'd be glorified in our lives together. For your sake, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I love uh, going to a wedding or uh, participating or officiating at a wedding. It's the establishment of a covenant between two people that is consecrated uh, by God. And so I tell people when they come to me for uh, marital preparation, I say, now think about this. There's really only two times in all of history that all of your friends and family are going to gather on your behalf. And this is the only one of those times that you're alive for. Well, think about it. So you want to make it a big celebration. Right? You want to have a great feast. You want to gather people and experience joy. It doesn't have to be expensive. It just should be a celebration of how God is bringing two people, two families together. It should be a good, good party. And we know we learned a couple of weeks ago that feasting is kingdom work, right? Is it not? I mean, the picture of God's uh, return is a wedding feast. And so we should celebrate that. And so now in our lives, uh, we are getting to the place where we have friends who have children uh, who are getting married. In June, we're going to go down uh, to Mississippi to go to one of our friend's daughter's wedding. And so we're excited to see it from a different vantage point, this, this, this wedding, marriage. And so often at weddings, 1 Corinthians 13 is a passage that is read. It's a chapter that reflects love. And it tells us what it means to love each other, what it means to love God, and what it means to be loved by God. This passage expresses in a wonderful way the beauty and the power of love. It captures the kind of love that we would like to experience in our lives and the kind of love that we feel compelled to give to the most significant people in our lives, whether those are marital relationships or their family relationships or friends. We want to give and receive this kind of love. So we learn in a beautiful way what love is according to God. But this contrasts with the, the kind of love that is expressed or defined in the culture in which we live. It, it's, it's as though we're like the Corinthians, uh, hearing from God's word what love is, but also living in a world that defines love in a very, very different kind of way. Often, love in our culture is just simply defined as a feeling that we have. I feel this uh, sense of love for another person. But we all understand that feelings come and go. Sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad. There are good and bad events that take place in our lives, and those events affect our mood and our outlook on life. But what happens in life when our feelings change? What if our feelings change about the people that we love? If love is only a feeling, then love can go away. But the Bible speaks about love in a different way. In this text, as we read through it, we see that 
Love is an action that is demonstrated by behavior. It's a decision. It's an act of the will. From this passage, we see that love is lots of different kinds of things, but it's never described as a feeling that we have. Now, that doesn't mean that love cannot be expressed as a feeling, that the loving actions that we take often don't arouse a feeling. But it does mean that our feelings of love often come because our decision to take action to love. In the text, Paul never says, love is that fluttery feeling that you get when you're first attracted to someone. He doesn't say, love is that twinkle in her eye, or it's his sly grin. No. What does he say? He says, love is patience. In some translations, the word is long-suffering, which means to suffer for a long time. And if you've ever been in love, you know that that includes suffering sometimes for a long time. It feels like a long time. This argument won't go away. I'm joking, but there are also times when the person that you love is going through something difficult. They're having a tough time physically or emotionally, and they're suffering. And so what does that mean? It means that you suffer with them. And because you're in love, because you're in relationship, you willingly are near to that person and you walk with them through the experience that they're having. So there's a sense in which you have to suffer because of what they're going through. That's what love is. It's connecting yourself to a person and saying, I'm going to be with you and to bear with you in this time of hardship and struggle. You know, we love to say, oh, things will all work out. But that's just not true. Things don't always work out. People die. People get sick and never recover. It's the reality of our world. And yet long-suffering or patience enters into that challenge and that difficulty. And it says, no matter what the end result is, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to suffer with you, even if it doesn't work out. Because the goal isn't things working out. The goal is love. The kind of love that Jesus has given to us. In the world today, love is gasoline poured onto a fire, a short burst of energy that fades and usually burns all of the hair on your arms. Pfft. Terrible illustration. But today, we say love is infatuation. It's, a, it's this idea that there's this person out there that's perfect for me. I don't really know anything about them, but I have an idea of who they are in my head, and they're perfect for me even though I don't happen to know them. But then the problem becomes when you get to know people, I don't know if you've known this about people, but everybody has sin and brokenness and idiosyncrasies and things that make them annoying. And once you learn what those things are, you realize, oh, this isn't the perfect person for me because I'm perfect and they're not perfect just like me. But that's not really love. Well, it's kind of a love. It's a love of self. It's a love of self that says, I'm so wonderful that everyone should do what I want. And if they do something that's annoying, they should correct it so that it doesn't bother me. I really want this person to make me feel the way I want to feel. If they can, then I will love them. And if they can't, well, then it just it wasn't meant to be. I had a professor who said, you never marry your soulmate. And he meant that you only become soulmates with someone through all the ups and downs of life, through the hardship, through the struggle, you end up becoming a person's soulmate. There's joy and there's challenge. And those bonds 
through long-suffering are forged in the flame. What else does Paul say about love? He says love is also kindness. We know kindness is a, a fruit of the Spirit. The word is Christuomai or Christos. It sounds like Christos, which is Christ. Kindness is a loving action taken towards someone for their good. Paul says in Romans that God's kindness leads us toward repentance. In that context, Paul is challenging those who are passing judgment on other people. In doing so, they're bringing judgment upon themselves. He says this, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The kindness of God is expressed toward those who have a hard heart. God is kind to them. Why? Because he wants them to experience his mercy and then to return to him in love. Kindness is an action that you take for someone who is opposed to you, maybe that you're in tension with. Kindness can be being nice to nice people, but it's more than simply being a, it's more than simply liking those who are likable. Um, Frank Burns and Mash one time said, it's nice to be nice to the nice. Isn't it? It's easy to be nice to nice people, but kindness is loving those who are not nice. Loving the disagreeable, the unlikable. It's taking an action to love and care for those who are broken, people who are immature, people who are messy or messed up. Let me think about today. We honor mothers who are the queens, the all-stars of liking messed up people, dirty people, smelly people, broken people. That's what moms do is they care for dirty, smelly, broken people. Think about this. You fought your mom on taking a bath at some point in your life. It happens in my house. Just go take a shower. These moms who have cared for us, who prepared food for us, who read stories to us, we give thanks for moms who lovingly discipline us, but in the moment, we're not thinking, Mom, thanks for disciplining me right now. I'm so grateful that you're setting me apart for a disciplinary action because of the action that I took that was disrespectful or wrong. I appreciate it. But we look back and we go, man, thank you. Thanks, Mom. I get to celebrate Mother's Day with my mom today for the first time in 20 years. And my mother-in-law. How? What a blessing. But these moms demonstrate kindness, even though we're immature, even though we're broken. They care for us and love us. And that speaks to the self-sacrificing love of Jesus. It points us to Jesus even before we're able to understand what God's love is like. So for moms, we give you thanks. We give you thanks. What else does he say about love? Love doesn't envy, he goes on. Love is not wanting what you don't have. It is wanting to give what you have even more. He says love isn't rude. Love is protecting Love is trusting. Love is hoping. Love is persevering. I mean, you, you could do a year-long study on 1 Corinthians 13 and simply take one of these words each month and say, this is the way that I'm going to seek to apply God's word to my life. I'm going to be more hoping for the people, toward the people in my life. Whenever anyone comes up to me and says, I feel discouraged, I want them to know I am hoping not just in an uh, unreasonable hope 
like, hey, this is going to work out, but then in a hopeful, God-centered hope for you that God is working in your life. What would it look like for us to be more hopeful as a people? All these actions. Here's the hard part, though. I don't know about you, maybe you're different from me, but I don't always feel like taking these actions. Sometimes, not very often, I'm irritable. Occasionally, maybe once a year, I have a sense of irritation in my spirit. No, we get irritated because of the little things, my schedule, the plan, who's not living up to my expectations, things aren't working out the way that I want them to be, and I just say, I'm irritated, but really inside I'm mad. I'm mad that people didn't do what I wanted them to do. I'm mad that the plan didn't go according to my plan. I don't know about you, but I identify with that. That's a struggle for me. We don't feel like being loving, but God's word commands us to love one another, and we aren't allowed just to do what we feel like doing. The more we we consider this passage, the more we realize that there's only one person who can actually love in this way. And the only person that can do that is God himself. And you know, in the Bible, uh, it says God is something three times. God is holy, God is light, and God is love. So you could actually reread this passage in this way. You could say it like this. God is patient. God is kind. God does not envy. God is not easily angered. God does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. And we see this wonderful picture of God's love. We recognize that we've fallen short of that love. We have fallen short. But God in his mercy teaches us about, these, about love, not only through these words, but through his son, Jesus Christ, the word who became flesh, the one who demonstrated the ultimate love on the cross. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's kindness. That's mercy. That's grace. And when we think about that, we just consider what it took for us to be rescued and redeemed and reconciled, that it moves us to love in the way that God commands us to love in 1 Corinthians 13. The only way to truly live out this true love is to rely on God's love working within us. And it's God's love in us when we give our lives to Jesus Christ. We become his, his children. And so that in increasing measure, we become the loving people that God wants us to be. I talked about this passage one time at a wedding, and uh, it was my cousin's wedding. And uh, interestingly, it's the same cousin who was able to get up on the wakeboard on the first try. So my cousin Taylor is getting mentioned twice in, in a row in sermons. Way to go. But I was at her wedding, and it was, uh, it was interesting because she and her husband met on a blind date. Somebody set them up, and uh, it's not often that you go to a wedding where the first date was a blind date. Evidently, a mutual friend connected them, and they went to Starbucks, and they talked for seven hours. And if you, if you knew my cousin, it would be her talking for seven or six and a half hours, and him nodding and saying, yes, I know. She talks a lot, but she's awesome. But during our meetings, as we were uh, talking about the wedding and getting ready for not only the wedding, but also trying to prepare for, for marriage, I asked them, well, tell me what it is that made you fall in love. And she said it was his kindness. He said it was her love for Christ. She said his love for those around him. Her desire to get to know him on a spiritual level. It's a beautiful story. And thankfully, they are still married. They have a beautiful daughter and another one on the way. It's a great story of love. And 
Certainly there have been challenges. They have gone through many, many ups and downs in their life. But they love God and they love each other. But the funny thing about a blind date is what happens. You go in and you are blind. You don't know what the person is going to look like. You don't know what their personality is like. Uh, and if the person setting you up on the blind date says they've got a great personality, you're like, oh, how's this going to be, right? You go in blind. You don't know anything about the person. And here's the challenging part, though. To be honest, when you're dating, you still really don't know all that much about the person because you know when you're dating, you're on your best behavior, aren't you? Say yes, somebody, because you were, right? You're doing all the right things because you're wanting to impress this person and to talk, show them what a gentlemanly gentleman you are or what a faithful woman you are, whatever. And so you're always kind of going in blind, even up until the point when you get uh, married. So hey, kids, that's why it's so important to marry someone who loves God in the same way that you do, who is pursuing Christ. Because when the tough times occur, and they will, you want someone who shares the same faith that you have. I mean, Paul says you're not even allowed to marry a non-believer. If you are a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't even marry a non-believer because you are of a different kind once you come to Christ. But you also want to be married to someone who has the same kind of relationship with Christ that you do. So in some ways, when you go into marriage, you're still running blind a little bit. Yeah, you know what each other looks like today. But I always tell the couple, I go, this is as good as it gets. When you're married, like you are done up like you've never been done up, and you are looking as good as you're going to look. It just goes downhill from here for most people. I mean, not for me, but for most people. Because Brandy, look, she's beautiful. But you don't know what they're going to look like in 10 years or 20 or 30, and you don't really know what they're going to act like. How are they going to navigate the challenges of this world? How will they be with children who are struggling? How are they going to be if they suffer, if you all suffer tragedy or disappointment or face a massive budget shortfall or the loss of a job or a loved one? Essentially, you're going in blind because you don't know the answers to those questions. And so when we get married, we're committing our lives to someone and we don't even really know them in a sense. It's that process of getting to know them. It takes a lifetime and it requires patience and kindness and forgiveness and perseverance. And most of all, love. And there will be times just like that when the date was blind. And this is for marriage, but this is also for any relationships that we have. When we're making ourselves committed, when we're committing to a faith community, we're saying, I'm going to engage in life with you, or deep friendships, or relationships with family members. There's a sense of blindness that has to occur. Because you see, when, we in, when we're in relationship with people, so many times we are going to have to turn a blind eye. We're going to have to be willing to overlook a person's brokenness. We're going to be, have to be willing to say, you know what? This is something that they do that annoys me, but I am going to not even mention it. Now, there are times when confrontation is important and necessary and good, but we also have to decide, how do I forgive? How do I move on? How do I love the person that I'm in relationship with? You need to be blind when your needs aren't fulfilled. You need to be blind when the hair turns gray or falls out and when the larger belt needs to be purchased. When the frustration of paying bills gets real or you disagree on how to parent your children, it requires a blind eye to look past the sin and remember the commitment that's being made. You see, when you turn a blind eye to these things, you're making a decision to love with your heart and not only with your eyes. 
And ultimately, this is only possible as we remember, this is how Jesus has loved us. We think about, we know that God will hold us to account for our sin. We know that. But guess what? There's a sense in which Jesus has turned a blind eye to it because he has paid for our sin on the cross. And so all of our sin is cast far away from us. So he won't even see it, even though he could. That's how Jesus loves us. That's how he moves toward us to extend kindness to us, even when we are irritable or angry or discouraged or defeated. And so that's how we are able to love the people in our relationships. So here's what I'm inviting you to consider. How do you apply this in your life? Is there one word that stuck out to you this morning? Was it uh, trusting? Was it protecting? Was it not easily angered? What was the one word? What was the action of love that you can take today towards someone in your life? And maybe it's the person who's likable and fun, but I would encourage you to think about who's the person in your life right now that needs to be loved with an action who needs to be loved by you moving toward them with forgiveness, with grace, with encouragement, with hope. Who's that person? What would it look like for you to take a loving action? Because it does us no good to come in and to just learn something, although although that's important. How are we now applying God's word in our lives to be the people he calls us to be? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, and if he's done what what we believe him to have done, then we are justified. We are in right relationship with him. But that should change us. It should make us more loving people. Think about what moms do. Moms all have struggles, and there are no moms that are perfect. But the love of a good mother is a beautiful thing. It's a sacrificing, self-giving kind of thing. And moms, yes, need to learn how to become better moms. But there's a sense in which, for most moms, it's kind of hardwired into who they are. It's because of how they're made that they give in the way that they do. And when we see a mom who isn't doing that, we notice because we've seen so many moms that just give sacrificially. It's just what moms do. Well, in the same way, when you trusted Christ, you have been made into a loving person. Because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, you are now a loving person. Whether your family members can tell or not. And your journey in Christ, is to live into and to become that person that Jesus has already created you to be. And the way that we do that is we think about Jesus. We meditate on his sacrifice. We study his word. We allow his word to convict us and to say, whoa, I've not been very hopeful. I've not been very convicting. I've not been very forgiving. (laughs) I've been convicting, not forgiving. And we allow God's word to speak to our hearts and that we rest in the joy that he's given to us through his son and that it makes us that loving person that he's already designed us and created us to be because of the sacrifice that he made. What a beautiful thing that is. And guess what that does? Then it impacts generation after generation. Last week I talked about a, a brother of ours who we love who was a good teacher, Matt Krause, and I was thinking about this message, and I thought, what does a good mom look like? And, and we've lost so many uh, dear friends in the last year. I was thinking about uh, Joyce Queen and uh, her faithfulness to Woodland and to the Lord and her just simple joy about showing up every Sunday to every class and coming in and offering uh, a, just a, a heart full of gratitude. And one of the ways that I know that Joyce Queen was a great mom was because of the love 
that her children had for her. Her daughter Jane drove from South Carolina and spent a month with her in the hospital, just thinking through and caring for her in a beautiful way. And I know that she feels the sting of her loss even, even today. But Joyce is known to us as a great mom in part because of her children. What a beautiful picture it is. And here's the thing. Whether you're actually a mom or not, whether you're actually married or not, our loving actions toward people today, this week, make spiritual children. They point people to what is good and true and beautiful. They set an image before the world that we live in, a world consumed with materialism and individualism and all the other things. And we create the kind of community that people say, I want to belong to that because of the love that's there, because they're forgiving, they're gracious, on all those things. So what's the one thing that God is calling you to do today, this week? I would encourage you to write it down. Write it down on a piece of paper and do it. Because if you don't, you're being disobedient. And I'm not telling you what to do. What's God saying for you to do? Enact love in our world today because Lord knows we need it. Will you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.